Um, welcome to Northwest Hills. My name is Josh. I, I genuinely love, uh, I love working here. I love uh, being a pastor here. It's so much fun. It's, it's also really humbling. And, uh, you know, here's why. Even just this morning, I look around, and as I'm greeting people coming in, uh, we've got just so many incredibly gifted and talented people in our church who are doing incredible things all over the globe for the gospel. I mean, I just, uh, you know, I see Martha and Alice right here, and just they got back from Europe this last week. Um, man, do you want to just give us two seconds? By, sure. You can come talking to my cheek if you want, but I don't know. You can just out loud. Well, how'd it go? I mean, welcome back. Thanks. Yeah. How was it? It was great. We spent... Uh... <laughs> no, no, that's okay. <laughs> We spent uh, two days in London uh, teaching a parenting class and then uh, doing our evangelism training, uh, sharing Christ every day. And then we went to Spain and we worked with a group of about uh, 40 people who are planning events for November. And we did our three nights of the full deal on how to share Christ every day. So it's really wonderful. The people of southern Spain are magnificent. Man, right on. So just encouraged. Um, first service, you know, uh, Tom White walks in. He just got back from 12 different cities all over Australia. I met a couple in here who just um, is coming back off the mission field, kind of spent their whole life uh, out in Japan. And so just uh, it's, it's so encouraging, yet simultaneously it is intimidating uh, to be uh, a preacher and a leader here when, you know, for many of these folks, they've been uh, at it for 20, 30, 40, 50 years, and I've been at it for two or four or something like that. But uh, it's, it's just so encouraging to see the body working. Uh, it's so encouraging to see uh, this is how God intended the body to work, to uh, equip the saints, to people to go out and to uh, really minister and preach the gospel all over the world. And it happens in such a real way here that I constantly see and read about. Um, and it's, it's just, it's so good. So uh, welcome, welcome to North Hills. Today, uh, we got a couple of different things going on. We, we're going to kind of do some dreaming together here in just a minute, kind of some, some vision stuff for the fall. Uh, eventually, we'll get into Luke 3. So if you got a Bible, go ahead and turn there. You can put your finger there, though, because it's going to take me uh, a second to get there. Um, so just, just some things, uh, kind of where we are as a season. So it is officially now, uh, it's the fall. And fall kind of breathes uh, kind of this weird season where um, our angst of summer is, is waning. I mean, a day like today, you still, you know, you still have that angst of I got to be outside and I got to you know, get those last few rays of summer. But, but finally, we're kind of turning that next chapter. Uh, the next season's beginning. Kids are back in school. Football started. Uh, baseball's ending. Um, you know, there's a whole season right now that's, that's kind of this, this eager expectation. Wow, we should name a series after that. Uh, we have. That's what, kind of just looking forward to this next year. And that's, that's kind of what our hope has been here. We, we want to take this time and, and spell out a little bit of vision and dream together for the next year. But also, kind of my heart in these four weeks is I've said that each week I want to hit a very, very simple truth 
about the love of God and about our call as Christians that is foundational, that is bedrock, that, that isn't new. There's nothing new about it. So kind of at the end of every single service, I want us to be uh, face-to-face with uh, the reality that we have a God who knows us, who loves us, who's called us to be on mission, and, and face-to-face with just one simple truth. And that truth today, I'm just going to give it to you up front, is repentance and confession. Uh, we are to be a people who at the forefront of what we are is a people who constantly are repenting and confessing. And I think as uh, kind of the evangelical movement has happened, we've, we've kind of uh, done a disservice in many ways against kind of uh, Catholicism where I think they do a much better job at kind of the act of confession, not necessarily in mode, uh, but in the idea of confession. I think we need to uh, get better at that and be a church who constantly comes before the Lord and just recognizes who we are in terms of authority and in terms of uh, the fact that we constantly break that authority and we need to be under it in a heart of confession and a heart of repentance. Um, so that's kind of the sermon in uh, 10 seconds. Now I got to uh, kind of chunk it out into two parts here. We're going to dream together for a second uh, then we'll get into uh, Luke 3 where we're looking at uh, John the Baptist, particularly his message today. What was he actually saying? It's, it's actually pretty important. So uh, let's dream just for, um, just for a second here. Um, in terms of discipleship, uh, if you've been part of Northwest Hills for the past decade, uh, we've had a certain strategy of discipleship. And by discipleship, uh, I, I'm really talking about kind of the total process by which we grow in our faith and by which we grow closer to Christ. So, so right now, what we're doing is part of our discipleship. You know, it's, it's interesting. Christians love to get in really stupid debates about what discipleship is, um, you can laugh, but it's true. Like, and some people say, unless you're across uh, the table from someone with, you know, a 700-page book going line by line, that's discipleship. Well, well, I'd say it's actually part of the whole thing. So this is part of our discipleship. But, but more than that, programmatically, we build stuff out here as a church to kind of equip us in this area of gl- growing closer to Christ. And so for the past decade, uh, what that primarily came out of uh, was interaction groups. Uh, if you've been around, you kind of know that those were life stage based groups. They were kind of mid-sized based groups uh, that primarily met on Sunday mornings here on campus. We had groups around life stages of young parenting, of empty nesters, uh, of seniors, of young marrieds. And, and really for the people in those groups... Um, relationships were strong, uh, a lot of learning took place, and most people would say that they were uh, going pretty well. But, it, but as a leadership team, uh, what became blatantly obvious as we looked at that was uh, there was a pretty big deficiency in our ability to kind of grow those and to get more people plugged in. Now, there's a number of reasons for that, kind of uh, relational uh, capacity, I think, has something to do with it. Uh, spatial capacity certainly has a great deal to do with that, um, leadership capacity at some level or not. So um, we saw those deficiencies, and as a team, we kind of asked the question, um, how can we get more people plugged in? 
And so out of that conversation was birthed uh, what we started two years ago, uh, community groups, where we are no longer kind of limited in the same ways as far as space uh, and even as far as kind of relational capacity because we meet in homes throughout the week in different people's places of living, um, and it, it's, we don't have the same constraints here being Sunday morning in a classroom. And so what we saw in interaction groups of a group of about 100 to 150 over 10 years pretty consistently, we've seen those numbers almost double uh, in community groups. So we say that that's, that's a good thing. We want uh, those relational environments to be available to uh, as many people as possible here. Uh, we want a large percentage, if not everyone, to be involved. In that, but also we know that community groups, uh, and even by their design and by their nature, have some flaws to them. Uh, We know that community groups are strong in relationships. We know that they're strong uh, in terms of accountability, in terms of prayer together, in terms of being able to kind of hash out some of the stuff that we do on Sunday morning. Uh, But in terms of kind of the ability to, uh, I'll just say, kind of. Take in uh, content-based knowledge. There's really not uh, a great platform for that. So if you wanted to, you know, study the book of of First John, or if you wanted to do a, a course on apologetics, or you wanted to do something on church history, uh, that there's not a great platform for that in a community group. So simultaneously, the the dream had always been and uh, is being laid out now that while we have community groups, we also have a space Sunday morning uh, for what we'll just call core classes and elective classes. We, we've always dreamt of a system where uh, there is a platform, like I said, on Sunday morning for kind of that content knowledge base learning because we know that we're called to love God with our mind, not just through relationship. And so we need a place where we can learn together. And so this year, uh, even starting next month, uh, we are kind of unfolding uh, this, this system here. And it's, it's pretty exciting. Uh, we've got kind of six core classes, which consist of things like church history and spiritual gifts, um, things like apologetics, things like... Uh, Oh, man, Uh, being new to Christianity, how do you get plugged in? And then there's a whole other area of kind of uh, elective-based classes. And and these uh, really are intended for uh, a whole array of different topics. We want to open them up to to things like, you know, spiritual warfare, parenting teens, um, you know, just a a huge array. If if you've got a passion and and you want to be able to share that and you want to be able to teach that, uh, we want to create a space where that can happen. So we're kind of laying this all out in, the, in this next year. And the reason why I'm giving uh, so much time to it right now is because we know that um, a change like this doesn't just happen through a couple of announcements, right? Um, we can make all the announcements we want, and it never ceases to amaze me how little that information actually gets uh, retained by everyone in the body. I mean, I can't tell you how many times people call me, uh, when's this happening? I'm like, that we said that 12 times, last service, literally 12 times. So um, what I, I'm, I'm stealing sermon time because I have your attention. And, and what I'm saying ultimately is as we make this change, right, this change will only be effective as much as we buy in. And, it, and it's a culture change. It's, it's a change that takes time. Uh, it's not a change that just happens like that. It happens by individuals engaging Uh, by testimonies and by lives transformed by the new mode that we are doing discipleship here and the classes that we're offering. So um, ultimately, my kind of hope 
in sharing all this with you is to kind of plead and to ask that you would engage. Uh, We've got just some phenomenal teachers. Even in October, uh, we've got a marriage series coming up taught by um, a local guy who does Marriage Work Family Matters, Dave Jackson. A great, uh, great material, great content. Um, We've also got one of our own, Rex Campbell, teaching Bible study methods coming up. So uh, just some really good content, good teachers. Check out your program. uh, Engage in that. And uh, just... Think about ways to how you can be a part of kind of this, uh, this whole system that we have going on. Apart from that, primarily, uh, we have said that community groups are our platform uh, for discipleship. So uh, if you're not in one, uh, as your loving pastor, I would uh, beg you to get in one. They're very healthy for your soul. Uh, tonight is a night where you're going to get plugged into one. So uh, everyone who is in a community group or who would like to be in a community group, tonight is the night. Come back, 6 o'clock. Austin uh, is going to lead some worship. I'm going to speak a bit, and we're going to hear some testimony from people who are in community groups and what God's been doing through them. Uh, So if you're not in one, it's a great season. Come get in a community group and uh, beyond just community groups, engage in kind of this, uh, this Sunday morning system. And if you've got ideas and thoughts and dreams and you want to share and you want to teach, we're all ears. We want to be able to empower uh, uh, you guys to do that. So uh, is, that, is that good? Are we, are we all on board? Did everyone kind of catch kind of the heart and vision and really reasoning behind the, the, the why we're doing what we're doing? Yeah, all right, six of you. Awesome. Um, six of you will be signing up. So um, it's all right. We had 12 first service, a little bit better. So um, let's, let's pray. Um, it is imperative that I get into the Word of God, as that is uh, the expectation, the eager expectation of why we're here. So uh, would you guys pray with me? God, I, I thank you that we can dream together. I know, Lord, that uh, methods will come and methods will go. And and even as I started this out and I said that for these four weeks, we're going to dream a bit. But, Lord, our hope is in you and you alone. It's not in a method. But, Lord, we pray that you'd bless this method. We pray that you would uh, really equip and empower and get people excited about um, a new way of discipleship. Not that it's new, but that it's uh, just different for this season. Lord, as we have eager expectation for the year, as we talked about last week, let our eyes be fixed on you, on your return, Jesus, and let our posture as individuals walking into a room, as individuals uh, of faith, of individuals who are searching, let our posture be one of repentance and confession. Jesus, I pray that your name would be made known this morning. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would guide my words. And Father, I pray that your name would be glorified. It's in your name, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. So last week we started uh, talking about John the baptizer. Uh, We started with the eager expectation Uh, Out of John chapter 1, verse 6, there was a man sent from heaven. His name was John. And we said, wow, that came out of nowhere. Silence was shattered. Heaven spoke. God spoke. An angel appeared. A miracle was promised. And in a very similar way, we've been waiting for a couple thousand years for Christ to return. And with an eager expectation, we set our hope on him and him alone. And that's where we begin our foundation for the year. 
I want to just remind us of that every single week that I'm up here in these next four, that Christ is where our hope is. His return is where our hope is. And, and for really a couple of reasons, I set my hope on Christ and his return primarily because it says that what I do with my life actually counts for something. That when I'm gone, the story continues. That the, the 80 plus, 90 years that I might have um, are actually part of a grand narrative that God is doing something. And that's incredible. We, we all want to believe that. I mean, you look at any media, any movie, we're all part of something bigger. But, but the reality is we actually are. And that is such good news. I set my hope on Christ and his return. My eager expectation is for that because I know that what is not right will one day be made right. And that hope alone, I mean, that, that single truth has, has honestly carried me this week. You know, I've, I've met with some people this week. I've heard some stories that, that you would not believe. I mean, it... Stories that are so hard to hear, I don't know. People leave and I just start weeping. I mean, we live in such a broken world that gets so hidden in a meeting like this. But individually, we, we know and we feel and we experience uh, these hurts and these pains. And so I keep my hope on Christ because there will be a day when those tears will be gone and where all wrongs will be made right and we'll be face to face with God. So I look forward to that day. And that's why I set my hope, my ear expectation on him. So we start there. We started with John and his uh, announcement. And today we get to his words. What was his message? What did John say? Um, I'm going to be looking at, uh, to be honest and to be fair, a pretty small sliver of his total message. But, but again, I, I'm setting kind of foundation for where I think we need to be as we start the year. So if you want to do some more study on this, uh, check out Matthew 3. Check out Mark. Check out John. Uh, Jesus says a lot. We're going to be looking at uh, a very small sliver. So if you're kind of questioning, well, that's not all he said, uh, I'm admitting that up front. He's saying a lot, but uh, I want to start with his kind of posture on uh, repentance and confession. So let's go Luke 3. Uh, we'll start in verse 2, just so I don't botch all the names in verse 1. Um, verse 2. During the high priesthood of Anas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. This is what we read last week. And he went into all the region around the Jordan, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. As it was written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled and every mountain and hillside be made low and the crooks shall become straight and the rough places shall become level ways and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is being laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? He answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. 
tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusations, and be content with your wages. This is 15. As the people were in expectation... And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into the barn. But the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So we start with John's words. We start with the message of John. What was John saying? And I, would, I just want to take a quick side note and say that words are really important. His message is really important. I think that we, we live in a time and a culture that says words don't matter as much. You know, we, we live in kind of a, a time and a culture where kind of relationships are celebrated as the ultimate tool for evangelism. Well, well, let's look at John for just a second. The guy, the guy was a strange man, right? I mean, uh, Matthew tells us that, that he was wearing camel skin, eating honey, eating locusts. Like that, that was not normal at the time. Do you, do you understand that? Like no one looked at that and said, I want to be like that guy. Like no one looked at John and said, I want my life to be like his. You know, he wasn't like just really good at hospitality. He didn't have the nice home where, where people came over. You know, you, you got the kitchen, but right off the kitchen, you got the living space. And it's so good for evangelism. Like, that's not what John was about. His words were important. You think people came out to the desert, to the Jordan, to, to see this well-put-together guy that they wanted to be like? No, they could care less about John. He, he didn't perform any miracles. Jesus tells us that in John 10. He wasn't performing signs. No one came to him and said, I want to see wonders. We know that that happened to Jesus many times. People followed him for his bread. But not so with John. People followed John because of what he said. Our words are important. Who, who are you selling See, 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 I think that it's so easy in our culture to sell ourselves. As Christianity, we say, well, come, come, come hang out with me. I've got a great life. It kind of looks like this, particularly on Sunday mornings. Don't you want Jesus too? That's ridiculous. Uh, selling myself would be idolatry, and it'd be a third-rate substitution for any Christ. So, so I'm not saying go be someone crazy, right? And I'm not saying don't be hospitable, and I'm not saying uh, avoid relationships. Have that home. Have people over. But don't substitute that for your words because our words are important. Our message is important, and that's why we want to hit on John's message today. His message is clear. Verse 3, we read this. And he went out to all the region around the Jordan proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. That's kind of the phrase that we're going to look at, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So John starts baptizing. 
Um, if you grew up in the church, you, you're kind of familiar with the, the scene of baptism. Baptism is simply taking someone, immersing them in water, bringing them back up. It is a type. It is an analogy. It is a picture of something greater. And John, for all intents and purposes, um, from really the best study that I can get, was the first uh, to, well, absolutely the first to baptize in this manner. We've got different pictures of uh, kind of uh, Jewish um, cleansing rituals and, and really kind of pagan transfers into Judaism were baptized, but we don't know time periods on that. So, so for all purposes, John was the first to do this. But we got to think through um, what's actually happening. And more than what's actually happening, who's John talking to and why are his words both offensive and life-giving at the same time? So, so you've got to imagine, who's, who's coming out to visit him? In, in uh, our text, we, we see the words, the crowds came out to him. Uh, we know that there were three groups of people in particular here because uh, John addresses them. He addresses the crowd, he addresses the tax collectors, and he also addresses the soldiers. So um, in Matthew, though, when he says crowd here, particularly this conversation that we're about to see, he's primarily talking to kind of the upper religious elite, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These would have been your, your professors, uh, your seminary graduates, your pastors. Uh, these would have been people who kind of gave their whole life to this religious system. And John has some words to them um, that really don't jive with them, particularly this idea of repentance. It's a very strange thing to tell someone you need to repent who feels like they're doing the right thing. We see his words, quite aggressive words in verse 7. This is John the baptizer speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees. He says this, he says, you brood of vipers. Uh, you can imagine that's not a, uh, a term of camaraderie. Uh, we have similar terms in our language. I will refrain from using them here to keep my job, but it's an aggressive term. Uh, brood of vipers is referring to the offspring of vipers in, in that like uh, you're nasty and not just you but your whole system. You, you got it wrong. He continues and he says, I, I can't help but find this somewhat comical. Who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? He's almost like, how'd you guys know to come out here? Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. He says, you guys got something majorly wrong here. And do not begin to say to yourselves, and here's kind of the key phrase that we're going to unpack here, we have Abraham as our father. Now, if you kind of know this, the whole kind of Jewish background system, you know that God created uh, for himself a people, starting with one guy, Abraham. And from Abraham, you kind of have a whole lineage where uh, generation after generation, you have a, a people group that was made, the, the people of Israel, um, the Israelites, and through them, uh, they had uh, really a sign that was given to them by God, the sign of circumcision, which pointed to the fact that they were God's children. Well, now you've got John coming up to them, and John's telling them, you need to repent, you got it wrong, which is a very strange thing for John to say. Um, when, when John says in 8, don't begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. What John is saying is he is interpreting their thoughts. And their thoughts would be along these lines. Why do we need to repent? Why, why, we're, we're children of Abraham. We are, we are people of promise. 
ultimately, it is, uh, on some regards, an assault on God and God's covenant. Because God's covenant said that you are my people, I am your God. And now John is saying, no, you need to repent. And they're going, no, we're children of Abraham. Why would we repent? It's a very interesting interaction we have here. I mean, imagine how offensive it would be someone to come up here and say, uh, evangelical church, you have it wrong, right? This whole reformation thing, it's completely wrong. For the past 500 years, uh, you got it wrong. John says, Pharisees, Sadducees, you have it wrong. You need to repent. And he backs up his claim here in verse 8. He says, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Kind of a side note, take this on your own time. You and I are those stones that he's talking about. He goes on in verse 9, he says, Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So, so kind of the million-dollar question is then, well, what makes you a child of Abraham? You've got these religious elite who are saying, we don't need to repent. We're people of promise. We are God's chosen people. We've got the sign of the covenant. Why are we to repent? And John says, no, God can raise up children from stones. We're not talking about a physical lineage. So what makes you a child of Abraham? What makes you uh, able to say, I don't need repentance here? Uh, Paul in Romans 4 really does a beautiful job at kind of laying out the whole picture. I'm not going to lay the whole thing out. You're going to do that in community groups. Uh, John, or Romans 4, 11 and 12. I'm going to read this to you and give you a picture. It's going to uh, have some ideas that might seem a bit weighty for some, but I'm going to uh, try to simply unpack his main thought here. So uh, this is answering the question, what makes you a child of Abraham? In uh, Romans 4.11, he said, Paul says this, referring to Abraham. He, that's Abraham, received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So by faith, that is what sealed his righteousness before he was circumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believed without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, that is you and I, and to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but also who walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So I know that there's a lot of big words in there that can be confusing, but what Paul's argument is and what John is saying to these religious elite, he says, don't consider your religious heritage your salvation. You're not saved because you are physical sons of Abraham. The reason why salvation is passed down is through faith, which Abraham had before there was the sign of covenant. So how does that translate to you and I? Many of us engage in a lot of religious activity, right? Many of us were born into Christian homes. Many of us come, we participate in a gathering like this. We're in community groups. We're in one-on-one relationships. We're in the word. None of that saves you. None of that brings, or, or none of that in and of itself 
is faith that leads to repentance. In the same way that many thought they were saved by what they did and who they were, you and I are not saved simply because we attend. Paul, or sorry, John uh, records what their response is. I love their response. They hear these words and they're broken. And they say, okay, what, what can we do then? They genuinely want to know. If, if being a son of Abraham, a physical descendant, isn't what saves me, what do, what do we do? That's what they say in verse 10. What then shall we do? And this is going back to verse 8, bearing fruit that keep, uh, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So what does that look like, they're asking. How do we bear fruit for repentance, keeping with repentance? If repentance was a tree, what does the fruit look like? And John addresses these three specific groups of people. He starts with the crowd. Again, for, for this uh, people, these would have been the commoners. These would have been kind of your everyday working class, maybe even poor working class people. Uh, this would have been uh, just your average person. He says this. This is what repentance looks like. This is what the fruit of faith looks like. Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Now, I think it's really interesting, and, and, and what I'm, you know, my interpretation isn't gospel, but I, I like the idea that he starts with the commoner, and he says, think outside of your experience right now. So very often, when you're simply struggling to survive, it's hard to take a step back and to look around and see those around you who have needs, because you have many yourself. And he says, even though you might have many needs yourself, Uh, What repentance and what faith looks like is looking around to other people and meeting their needs as well, even though you might have many. I like that he starts there. He puts us all on a level playing field. He continues on to the tax collectors. And he says this in 13, collect no more than you're authorized to do. So those with resources, of which there are many in this room, don't manipulate the system to get what you want. Collect no more than you're authorized to do. Be a woman of integrity. Be a man who keeps his word. And to the soldiers, these would have been the non-Jews. These would have been the soldiers under Roman occupation. Um, they're coming out. They're asking, how, uh, what does repentance look like? He says, don't extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation. And be content with your wages. So those in positions of power, those in positions of authority, when you get a taste of power, what usually happens? You want more, right? You you, you want more. And he says, be content. Be content with where you're at. Man, that's a hard challenge for us. Be content with what you have. And by the way, in America, we are all the rich and privileged. We have much. And he says, be content In all three of the responses, um, ultimately what he's getting after, this kind of fruit of repentance, is an acknowledgement. It's an acknowledgement of authority. It's an acknowledgement kind of of this ultimate repentance that starts with, God, you are authority in my life. I need to confess and come under you. 
He has that level playing field where, where you get off of the, the workspace where it's me and my life and you get under. Okay, there's someone who is above me who's called and asked me to live a certain life. And so as we kind of walk out through these next couple weeks, my kind of takeaway from this has to do with that confession piece there and that repentance piece there. What does confession and repentance look like as a body? You know, what does it look like as an individual? You know, in your home, what does confession and repentance and an attitude that says, God, I trust you. I want to give my life to you. I want to serve you. I'm saved through faith. And by my faith, my life's going to look like this. What is the this? What is it on a daily bit, on a daily basis? You know, what does repentance look like in your home? My hope would be that repentance and confession would be a regular practice, that, that in your home these words would be heard often, they would be spoken often. Things like, I was wrong. Megan, I'm sorry, I've failed you here. I was a jerk, I did not give you the time that you need, I haven't led you spiritually like I should have, I haven't been providing for you. I haven't been giving you the attention you need. Uh, I haven't been gentle. What does it look like in your home? Maybe I haven't been listening. I've been short. I haven't spent enough time with the kids. I haven't kept up my end of the bargain. I haven't been engaging. I've been disrespecting you. What does a heart of daily confession and repentance look like? One of the, the neatest things about the way that we kind of organize service here is that we have a time every single week, kind of this response time, where, where we're face-to-face with communion. We're face-to-face with the table, with the bread and the cup. And our hope is that this year, and, and has always been, that as we are entering into this time, it would be a time of confession and of repentance. Because... The gospel says that you don't live up. And if you don't live up, which none of us do, there's always room for confession and there's always room for repentance. And so my hope is that as we kind of leave here today and as we leave this week, that man, in your homes, it's, you know, maybe it's, man, my, my husband, I'm sorry, my wife, my roommate, my boss, my children, my parents. I mean, we have all on certain levels, offended, we've all wronged. And as a Christian, faith that shows itself says, I'm going to be a person of constant repentance. See, the opposite, and Jesus says this constantly, is a prideful heart. A prideful heart who never opens its mouth and says, I was wrong. That's not faith. That's you usurping authority and saying, I am authority. But faith is recognizing God is our authority. Faith is recognizing that Christ has already paid for what you're apologizing for. And faith gives you the freedom to stand on a ground and to say, honey, I blew it. I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And then faith gives us the ability to actually do something about it. You know, there will be times when again and again and again we're apologizing. But also faith is action. And we saw this in his response to the crowd to do something about it, to notice that there are those without, and then to do, then to meet the needs. And so when we confess, when we repent, we are acknowledging, but then we meet the needs as well. 
And then next week, we're going to have to apologize for some of our shortcomings. And then next week, we're going to have to apologize. But then we're going to keep moving on towards life under that authority. So that's what we want to do as a church. We want to be a people who constantly have repentance and confession on the front of our mouths and in the front of our homes. So we're going to move into a time of communion. We're going to pass it this week. I'm going to kind of walk us through a time when you can uh, spend some time with the Lord. There, there are many conversations that probably should have between you and the Lord saying, God, I, I blew it here. I'm sorry here. And then later, go find your friends. Go find your coworkers. Go find your kids, your parents, your spouse. Have a heart of repentance. Have a heart of confession. We all are under Christ and his forgiveness and his authority and faith that shows that shows that we are a people with a contrite heart. So would you guys pray with me as we move into this time? Heavenly Father, it is such a joy to know that you are ultimate authority. It's also really humbling to know that I constantly fall short. And that you've told me with my mouth to come confessing. In Matthew 3, it says that they came to be baptized confessing. God, I pray that we'd be a church who is really good at confessing and really good at apologizing and really good at saying, man, I'm sorry, I blew it. Would you help me carry on? Would you help me in these areas where I'm falling short. And then on the other end of that, if we are receiving a a plea for confession or for forgiveness, God, let let us recognize who we are in that we have received that from you and let us then freely give forgiveness. Let us as individuals not harbor anything Because Christ, you have not harbored anything from us. On the cross, you paid for all sins. And let us live as the free people we are and freely forgive and freely repent and constantly confess. We love you, Jesus. Amen.